The sermon passage this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Aphrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her, Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and rises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Ashley. That was impressive. Uh, lots of hard words to pronounce there. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, glad to have you with us this morning. If you came thinking, as I told you last week, that we were going to be doing the second part of what we started a two-week uh, series of messages last week, uh, I have a confession to make. I lied to you, but I'm going to blame it on God. 
And that's a pet peeve of mine, the way we blame him for the stupid things we do in our lives. Uh, But this morning I have no other uh, case but to say that as I was trying to get ready for what I thought we were going to be talking about this morning, I just couldn't do it. It didn't seem to be coming, and I really felt almost uh, an antagonism towards that until I just decided to, to move to a passage that I had been wanting to talk to you about for a long time, and then all of a sudden things just began to happen. And so we are, in fact, this morning going to begin what is going to be a 15-week series throughout the rest of the fall from the books of First and Second Samuel looking at David the king and the life of David. So we're going to start that this morning with the story of, of Hannah. Uh, who couldn't have a son, and yet out of her barrenness, God gave her a son who would be Eli the priest, who would then bring uh, the kings, uh, David, and his sons after him to the people of Israel. So that is the story before us, and, uh, and I'm really excited uh, to get to talk about these things with you this morning. So we're going to look uh, at this passage, and we're going to see it really teaches us three things, okay? So as we kind of bring ourselves into this new series that then is going to take our attention throughout the fall, three things from this passage in particular. First... The passage means to teach us a spiritual truth, and that truth is is that we are spiritually barren. Hannah is going to be a parable for our own spiritual barrenness. So the three, again, the three things. First, we are spiritually barren. Secondly, the passage is also going to teach us what to do with our spiritual barrenness. And then thirdly, how you find the courage to do it. So we're spiritually barren. What do we do with our spiritual barrenness? And how do you find the courage to do what you, what you must do with your spiritual barrenness? Barrenness. Okay, that's all of that's right here. We're going to look at it together as we walk through, beginning just with the idea of being spiritually barren. Okay, so let's look first at this barren woman. David's, David's story. Okay, the story in First and Second Samuel of the great king who would come and would rule over the world for the sake of his people and bring them to, into the blessing and victory and favor of God begins like this. Verse 1, there was a certain man of Rathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, and he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, it's a strange way, you know. Strange way to begin the history of, a great, of the great king who would rule over his people and bring them success and victory and blessing. But if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, here's what you know. You know that by this point in the biblical narrative, this has almost become formulaic. In other words, this is not the first time we've met with a story of salvation that begins with a barren woman, right? All the way back in Genesis chapter 11, we're told that out of all of the the darkness and the chaos and the sin of humanity that has developed out of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that God was going to choose a man, and through that man and his family, he was going to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth, and the man's name was Abram, and Abram had a wife, and her name was Sarai, and what we're told the first time we meet Sarai Sarai, Abram's wife, and she was barren. And yet out of that barren woman was born supernaturally of God a son named Isaac who then would become uh, the grandfather you know, to the people of Israel who would go down to Egypt and come out as a nation uh, as we find them here in this story. Okay, Another place, if you remember the story in Judges chapter 13, and in Judges chapter 13, the people of Israel are being oppressed by their enemies, and they're in desperate need of a deliverer, a savior, and we're told of a man named Manoah and his wife who was barren, and yet God visits this barren woman, and to her is born a son. You may have heard of him. His name is Samson. And through the ministry of Samson, as flawed as he was, God brought deliverance and victory for his people and subdued their enemies. And then, of course, more familiar to you might be in the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, verse 7, we're told of a man Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. 
who's barren. And yet it is to be in the providence of God that this woman who is barren is going to have a son and that her son will not just be any young man. He is going to be the herald of the Messiah who is to come. And out of her barren womb comes John, who becomes John the Baptist, who is the one who goes before Jesus. And so this, this is a repeating pattern in the Bible, okay? This is what we meet with when we come to this story. It is this repeating pattern, this story thread that continues to pop up over and over again in the Scriptures. And it's just this, that salvation begins with a barren woman. Now, to understand why this is significant, we have to understand what it meant to be barren at that time. Because there's really a lot of cultural distance. A lot of cultural distance. Okay, in some way. My sister, uh, Leslie, tried for many years before she was able to get pregnant. Uh, and then when she got pregnant, named her son Nathan because it means gift of God. And so, I mean, so our family, this has been close to our family. My brother-in-law and sister-in-law have been trying for, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years. Uh, and had a really hard time getting pregnant. We found out just a few weeks ago, this is Ashley's brother, that they're pregnant with twins. That just gives me shivers. So pray for them. Um, but, But praise God. So I've walked with, you know, my sister, I've walked with them through their pain and disappointment and longing for a child over the years. I know a little bit about it. But all of the pain and all of the sadness and all of the, the disappointment that, that both my sister and, and Ashley's brother and his wife have experienced through the years of barrenness was nothing compared to what Hannah experienced. Because in this culture, in Hannah's day, to, to bear children was almost, almost, but pretty much the sum total in val- of, a, of a woman's value and worth. I mean, it was a good thing in these days, a desirable thing to have lots and lots of children. If you had a big family then you would have numbers, and with numbers, you could, you know, we talk about fielding your own sports team, right? Whoa, you could, you know, that's kind of the, wow, you're close to being able to have your own basketball team, people tell me, when I have four kids, right? But back then it was, wow, you have an army. Or you had lots of kids, that meant that you could plant a larger, you know, piece of ground to harvest because you had more workers to go out there and do it, or you had a family business and there was more hands on deck. And so the larger the family, the more children a family produced, the greater its wealth, the greater its status in the, in the community. So having children, literally, having children was a life and death reality. Literally. It means everything. Without children, you had no hope, uh, no retirement plan. You needed children to make it to adulthood when you got old so that they could care for you when you couldn't care for yourself. And so it was a life and death issue. And therefore, Women who bore lots of children were treated like heroes. And women who couldn't bear children often felt completely useless, worthless. They were mistreated by those who, you know, especially by the competition. So you see the family dynamic here in verse 6, don't you? Look look there in verse 6. The other wife, Penina, used Hannah's barrenness to attack her, to provoke her, we're told, to make her feel terrible about herself. She is Penina is the voice of the culture of that day saying to Hannah, you are hopeless, you're worthless, you're nothing. And we're told in verse 6 there that the result is that Hannah became uh, irritated. It's an interesting word. Irritation is probably not the best translation, but it's kind of there's no really re- good English equivalent, but it is a word that describes a raging thunderstorm, a hurricane. Uh, it is used everywhere else in the Bible, to describe a storm, an actual storm. 
here in this verse, this is the only place in all of the, all of the Bible where it is used, this word, to describe the interior emotional life of a person. I mean, Hannah is raging like the thunderstorm. She's angry, she's despondent, she may be experiencing some depression because we're told she weeps and she will not eat. So she's lost her appetite. I mean, there are, you know, all kinds of conjectures. But in whatever case, she's in deep, deep agony and despair and depression. She's roaring in agony because she can't have a child and she wants one so badly. Now, our culture is very different, but yet the same. And in our culture, it is no longer, as it was here that children are the ultimate thing that you must have in order to be somebody. In our culture, it is affluence or achievement or physical appearance. You know, it's money and smarts and looks. And if you, have, if, you, if you don't have those things, then, well, you hate yourself because, like Hannah, you're a nobody. But, if, but, but you see, what I, what's fascinating to me is as you think about how this works here, take it out and think about how it works here, that no matter what group or subculture, even in the Christian subculture, like conservative evangelical Christian circles that so many of us run in, not only because it's a part, subset of the larger American culture where it's looks and smarts and, and, and money that, that, you know, you're somebody if you've got those things. In the evangelical Christian subculture, not only do you have to have those things, but then you have to have, you know, you have to have a husband that loves you and you have to have children that are well-behaved and successful and educated and who adore you. And without all of those things, you know, you're nothing. So every culture, even subcultures, come to you oppressively and they say, you're nobody unless you have this. See, it wants to suck you into its meaning system so that if you accomplish whatever the culture tells you you need to accomplish in order to be quote-unquote saved, then you'll become a penina. You'll be taunting, you'll be mocking, you'll be arrogant, you'll be smug, kind of sinning, looking down on other people. Or if you fail, if you fail, if you don't live up to what the culture tells you must do, if you don't accomplish what it says you've got to accomplish, then you'll become like a Hannah, roaring with agony, self-loathing, despairing. And so I think to get into the story a little bit, what we've got to begin to ask then of ourselves is, let me just ask of you, where are you Penina-like? If you want to trace back, what is it? Okay, it's not children. Because if anything, we as a culture despise children now. We make fun of people who have large families. So it's completely reversed, right? So it's not children. The grants are nodding and smiling back there, right? 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 We, I mean, it's the exact opposite, but it's not. Because what we've replaced children with other things. And if you want to know, if you want to know, okay, I, I really don't, what, what is it then that I'm going after because I'm trying to get kind of, I want to be a hero, and I want other people, you know, what is it? I'm not sure. If you want to know, then just ask this. Where are you Penina-like? I mean, where are you, where are you Penina-like towards others? Where are you taunting and mocking? Where, you know, where is it that you feel in your soul a sense of self-righteousness and worth over other people because you've done something they've not? Okay, or ask yourself, where are you, where are you Hannah-like? I mean, where are you in your life roaring in agony? Because there's something, there's something out there you, you feel like you need to have, but no matter how much you exert your power toward it, you can't seem to accomplish it and get it done. Where are you self-loathing? Where are you despairing? Okay? That's how you can begin to get into this text. But see, there's a lesson. There's a lesson that, this, that Hannah's barrenness is trying to teach us. 
There's a spiritual truth here. And really, I think it's in two parts. And so let me just say each of them uh, in turn. Okay, first, first, I think the Bible is using these stories of barrenness. Hannah, Sarah, Manoah's wife, Elizabeth, all these stories of barrenness to teach us this spiritual truth. We are spiritually barren. Every single one of us. I mean, Hannah's barrenness, as well as the other women we've spoken of, is a living parable for our spiritual barrenness. In other words, bearing children might make you a hero in the culture of that day, or good looks or material possessions or smarts might gain you the admiration and the applause of the people around you, but in the final analysis, they can't save you. They may give you a name with the people you run with, but they can't give you a name with God. You see, what we're after in all this cultural game playing that we do that's going on here with Penina and Hannah and all that stuff, we need a righteousness. That means we need a rightness. We, we're looking for a verdict. We need the cultural thumbs up. That's what we need. That's what's, that's what's driving our hearts in all these things is, is we, we know we're not right. I mean, in, internally, existentially, Deep on the inside, we know that something's broken, something's not right in there, and so we're looking for somebody to, to tell us what we know is not true of ourselves. Well, tell me I'm right. Tell me I'm, you know, tell me I'm beautiful. Tell me I've got what it takes. Tell me I'm okay, because what sin has done is sin has come, and sin lays upon the conscience inside of us, and it tells us, it screams at us that we are guilty because we violated God's law. That we have broken the commandments of God, we have broken covenant with him, and that we are under the condemnation of God because of our sin and our rebellion. And also that, we're, that our lives are just all broken up. We're in ruins. We're, we're broken in pieces. We don't work right. And these stories of Hannah and these other women are there to teach us that no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, no matter what strategies we employ, we are completely powerless to do anything to make ourselves right spiritually. There's a second piece, and that is that not only is this here to teach us of our spiritual barrenness, but there's, it's also here to teach us of the danger that Peninas face. Because you see, the danger of being a Penina, the danger for those who are winning the cultural contest, who have achieved success, you know, in other words, many of those among us, those who have smarts and money and, and good looks, the danger is that it's harder for those people to wake up to their spiritual barrenness because they're winning, Right? They're celebrated. They're the heroes. But the message is, no, 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 we're all has. Every single one of us. And so secondly then, if the passage is here to teach us about our spiritual barrenness, then it also teaches us what to do with our spiritual barrenness. And we learn it in what Hannah does. And if you look at, verse, look at verse, uh, verses 7 and 8 and then on to verse 9, you'll see there, Penina's mocking Hannah because she cannot have children. She's provoking her. And then Elkanah, because he's a dear man, uh, comes to her and he, he says, Hannah, uh, you know, you can't have children, but it's okay. Isn't my love enough? I mean, isn't, isn't the love that I have for you, can't that replace? So, what's, so, what, so let me just explain to you what Elkanah, even though he probably is not aware he's even doing it, but here's what he's doing. Hannah, don't put your hope in a child to... to Make yourself lovely and praiseworthy. Put your hope in my love. And let my love for you be the thing that fuels your soul. Right? And see, this is what, this is the, this is the temptation. 
this is the wrong way to deal with your spiritual barrenness, to put all of your hope for a happy life in a certain thing, in a relationship, right? The love of a man for you, the love of another person, or the love of a child, or a grandchild, or a business success, or whatever it might be, something that can give you a righteousness. And this is what Hannah refuses to do. Hannah says no. He said, she says no to all those options because look, look what happens in verse 9. We're told in verse 9, Elkanah comes to her in verse 8. And then in verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And that Hebrew word there, everybody that I read talks about, that Hebrew word describes a decisive action. She's decided to do something about this. And what did she decide to do? Look what she does. She goes to God and begins to pray. She takes her barrenness. She takes her helplessness and her hopelessness to God. Look at the text. She doesn't answer Penina in verse 7. Right? No indication of her answering Penina. She doesn't answer Elkanah in verse 8. She doesn't, she doesn't respond at all to his, you know, hey, put, you know, isn't my love enough? Put your hope in my love. She turns away from both of them. She turns away from the whole system. She, in other words, in essence, she's refusing to play the cultural game. She's saying, I'm no longer going to base my identity on what other people tell me I have to be. I'm no longer going to look to you know, even having a child or the love of my husband as the way to get for myself a righteousness. She's turning away from all those false hopes, and she's turning to God. And look what happens. Verse 11, she makes a vow to the Lord. This is important. Look at her prayer there. Verse 11, she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now, what is that? I mean, is this, I I just, you know, I started, is this the prayer in the foxhole? (laughs) God, if you get me out of this, then I promise. I don't think so. I don't think so, and here's why. I'll tell you why I don't think that is true. There's a part of the passage that, uh, that I didn't have us read that's really important. And I, want, I would want to draw your attention to it. Uh, and it happens in between Hannah's prayer here and then Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. And in verse 18 of chapter 1, this is what the text says, okay? Let me just read it to you, so just listen to this part of the story. We're told, then after she had prayed this prayer, the woman went her way and she ate. And her face was no longer sad. And then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. Now, notice. That part of the text doesn't say she prayed, she got pregnant, she had peace. The exact opposite, it says she prayed, and then she ate. In other words, she, she was so distressed she couldn't eat before, but she prayed, she took her barrenness to God, and as she prayed, her heart was filled with hope and peace. So it wasn't prayer, pregnancy, peace. It was the opposite. It was prayer, then peace. Then pregnancy. In other words, her peace was no longer attached to whether she would have a child or not. The thing in her life that made everything else okay was not a child. Her hope had shifted. I mean, something happened as she prayed to God here uh, that made you know, everything else okay. She wasn't putting her hope in a happy life for a child anymore, but in God himself. And when she says, verse 11, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you, and no razor will touch his head, she's offering him to God as a Nazarite. And a Nazarite as opposed to a priest. To be a priest in the service of God, you had to be born into a certain family line in Israel, the house of Aaron. But if you wanted to be a priest and you weren't born into that line, you could still serve God and give your life 
wholeheartedly to God by taking a Nazarite vow. And part of the Nazarite vow was is that no razor, you would never cut your hair, which sounds nasty to me, but I guess was okay back then. And so she's saying, God, if you give me a son, if you give me a child, then I will, I will give him back to you as a Nazarite. He would grow up in the temple, away from his mom, away from his family, his whole life given over to serving God. So, in other words, she's saying, if you give me a son, I won't try to use the son to meet my needs. He won't become a way for me to gain the applause and the approval. I'll give him back to you, and you can have him. So, do you see what that means? I mean, Tim Keller paraphrases her prayer, and I think he does a fantastic job, and I could never improve upon it, and so I should probably just read it to you, and here's how he puts it. He says, this is Hannah's prayer, in essence, okay? He says, oh Lord, up till now I've wanted a child for me, but now I want a child for you. Before now, if you had given me a child, it would have made me a slave to my social status or to my husband's love, and I would have smothered him and lived my life out through him, but that's over. I'm giving him to you, and whatever you do now is okay with me. See, the transition, what happened is she no longer needed, she no longer rested her heart in the hope of a child that would bring her social status. She's not looking to a child or to anything else anymore for righteousness. She's content to lose the cultural contest, and the result is that her roaring agony was turned to peace. Now, don't you want that? I mean, anybody want that? <laughs> All of the raging and roaring inside. I mean, so where? So then thirdly, and finally, where did Hannah then get the courage and the freedom to do that? I mean, if, if, what, if, if the passage is teaching us that we are spiritually barren, it teaches us what to do with our barrenness, that like Hannah, we need to, to turn away from all of the ways the culture would try to get us to compensate for it by finding something that could become a righteousness for us. Instead, we turn to God in our barrenness and say, I've got nothing but you. Then how in the world do you find the courage, the faith to do that? And the answer very quickly, is just worship. I say that because chapter 2 records a prayer. It is a song that Hannah sings in response to God hearing her prayer and giving her a son, who is Samuel. So let's look at the song here in a little bit of detail in 2 Samuel 2. Because the secret to her change from roaring agony to peace is really in the theology of the song. And so a couple things here, if you come to chapter 2 with me, just two general observations at first. And I want you to begin to see how this song begins. She says in verse 1 of chapter 2, my heart exalts in the Lord. In other words, my joy is in you, God. She doesn't say my joy is in Samuel. No. I mean, see, she's, her prayer's been answered. She's got the son she's been looking for, and yet she doesn't say my prayer, my joy is in Samuel. No, she says my joy is in the Lord. The cause of my joy and my delight and my satisfaction is God, not the son he gave me, not my good reputation, not the approval of other people. That's just marvelous to me. But then a second general observation that, that Hannah has been able to come to is if you look there, she not only puts her joy in God, she declares unashamedly his utter sovereignty in all of life. Look at verses 6 and 7, and here's a barren woman who could not have children, who were told earlier in the passage the reason she couldn't have children is because it is the Lord who opens and closes the womb, and he had closed hers. And yet she is able to find the faith here in verses 6 and 7. And this is just, these, are, these are such powerful words. And if you're in a place of despair and despondency, maybe even borderline depression, it, you, you can feel the weight of ever being able to say this out loud where she says in verses 6 and 7, the Lord kills and brings back, brings back to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor 
and makes rich. Now, we have, an, we have a, a great theology in our culture of God. We love the Lord makes rich. Amen. But this says the Lord makes poor. You know, the Lord kill his utter sovereignty over all of life. And Hannah, Hannah has found a way to rest her joy and her hope for a happy life in the God who opens and closes the womb and who is in control of all things, who makes rich and makes poor, who brings to life and who kills. <laughs> but you see, we need to go into a little more detail before we're done. Then I want you to see how Hannah's rejoicing, her exaltation in God is the result of her seeing. And the theology of this song really is just this. She sees a pattern and she sees a person. And then we're done, okay? A pattern and a person. First, the pattern. You see, Hannah sings, There is none holy like the Lord, verse 2. In other words, Hannah says, No one else in all the universe is like you, God. No one works the way you work. You are utterly different and incomparable than any other person in existence. That's what she means when she calls the Lord holy. He doesn't do things the way we do. And here's what she's referring to. This is how God works. And it's presented here through a series of contrasts. Four of them, in fact, in these verses. Okay, so let's just walk through this, this song together really quickly. First, the first contrast is between the strong and the weak. Verse 4, Hannah sings, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. In other words, the bows of the mighty are all the strategies and the resources that we all look to for security and strength, that we arm ourselves for battle. And yet, Hannah says, God works in such a way that he actively works to destroy the very strategies and resources that we might begin to put our hope in. But to the weak, right, the, 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 the feeble, and that's a great word, it literally means those who stumble and fall because their legs are weak. To them, he's kind. He gives strength. He shows up. He brings victory. Second contrast. In the same way between those who are full and those who are hungry. Verse 5. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. In other words, if you're full, if you've got everything you need, if your life is insulated from any danger or worry or possible scenario where you might find yourself in need, what Hannah's saying is God is going to come and he's committed to making you weak and needy. But if you're weak and if you're hungry and if you don't have enough to eat, if, if you don't know how you're going to pay for the groceries next month, God knows that. And he's going to work in such a way in your life that not only do you have your needs met, but you will never see, you will never be hungry again. Third contrast you see this? You begin to see this. I mean, she's building. Third contrast is between the barren and the fertile. And she says, the barren has born seven, verse 5. But she who has many children is forlorn. And seven is the number of perfection. So you can see what, he's, what she's saying there. Those who are barren, the, one, the barren one has born seven. In other words, God works through barren women to bring about his purposes. And then the fourth contrast is between the poor or the low and the rich. Or the exalted. In verse 8, he sa- she says, He, God, raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Now, there's a statement in the New Testament, I think, that is a nice summary of the teaching of Hannah's song, the pattern that we see here. And it's in both James 4, 6, and 1 Peter 5, 5. And it's just this. Both those writers in the New Testament say, say it this way. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, 
gives grace to the humble. And both James and Peter are making an appeal for humility. Humble yourself, James says, and God will exalt you. And here's what Hannah understands uh, that we don't understand a lot of times. Hannah understands, and we see it in her prayer, that God does not favor the strong, the fertile, the rich, and the exalted. The culture might, but he doesn't. Strength and riches and success and achievement, even moral achievement, might make a name for you in the culture, but they don't make a name for you with God. God opposes the proud. He breaks the bows of the mighty. He causes those who are full to hunger. Why? Because he knows that the only way to be in a relationship with him, that is, the only way you can get into a relationship with God, the only way you can experience the blessing of the kingdom of God that is coming ultimately in the person of Jesus is to come before him like Hannah did with nothing and to beg him for mercy. And Jesus said this much in the Beatitudes when he said the kingdom belongs to who? The poor in spirit. The spiritually bankrupt, the spiritually barren. You know, those who know they have no leg to stand on, that they have no hope of achieving a righteousness through their own good works. God opposes the proud, James and Peter say. And Hannah says, but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, the way to get a name with God is to humble yourself. It's to know you have no name, that you have nothing to commend yourself to him. God rewards that heart posture. And the way salvation works then is just this. The weak and the hungry and the barren and the poor and the nobodies, they're included, but the strong and the fertile and the religious are excluded. And the reason is is because salvation is by grace. It's upside down. That's what Hannah's describing, right? She's exalting God for his grace. Salvation comes to the weak and the needy and the barren and the broken and the poor. Because it's something God does on their behalf. Salvation is not, look at me, I am strong. Look at me, I am a good person. Look at me, I have done these great things. Don't you, you, know, don't you think God must be proud of me? No, salvation is, we've done nothing and God's done everything. And only until we come to that realization will we ever begin to really exult in him the way Hannah does here. And that's why salvation in the Bible begins with barren women. Because it's something God does. It's grace. It's his strength in the place of our weakness. It's his provision for our need. It's his way of saying, you can't save yourself. It's something I must do for you. On your own, you're barren, without hope, just like Sarah's, Sarah and Abraham, just like Hannah. And therefore, therefore, what God must do, and this is what Hannah's saying, what God must do is God must, in order to save the strong, he first has to make them weak. In order to save the, hung, the, the, the full, he must first make them hunger. In order to save the fertile, God must first prove to them their spiritual barrenness. This is the pattern. See? This is the pattern. The weak are included and the strong are excluded. The guilty are forgiven and the righteous are condemned. <laughs> this is the pattern. But the pattern is there because of the person. And the truth is that we have greater resources at our disposal than Hannah did. And you see the clue to to understanding Hannah's hope comes at the very end of the prayer in chapter 2 and verse 10. And so if you just come to verse 10 with me, I want you to see what Hannah ultimately, where she ultimately lands. She says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. I mean, this statement completely perplexes people, scholar types, because at this point in Israel, they didn't have a king. Uh, and so what's Hannah talking about, you see? But what's been developing in the, in, the, in, the, in the storyline as it kind of progresses through the Old Testament, especially in places like the book of Judges, is that Israel needs a king. 
Israel needs a king. And so First and Second Samuel is the story, and this is what we're going to see in the coming weeks, of how God provides a king, a man after his own heart, to shepherd and lead his people, David. And under David's rule, Israel is going to experience a flourishing military victory and success and prosperity. And so the commentators say that this is the writer's way of introducing the theme of these books. But there's something else here that Hannah's on to, something she intuits that is, that is just remarkable. Because you see there, she not only is looking and hoping in a king that is going to come, but there she says that God is going to exalt the power of his anointed. And that word anointed, see... In the promise of the king, like David, who will, will come, is a deeper promise that one day God would send the true king, the one who is better and greater than David, the Messiah. That's the word for Messiah there. And that he would sit on David's throne and rule not only Israel, but the whole world. And that he would make the world whole again. That he would take our barrenness and replace it with fertility and joy. And of course we know. See, ultimately what we know is that this promised king, this true king, the one greater than David, is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ. Because a thousand years later, another young woman facing an impossible birth sang a song about the child in her womb, much like Hannah did here, and what his birth would bring. And her song was almost identical to Hannah's song. Listen to it in Luke chapter 1. Here's what Mary sings. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he is sent away. See, there's the pattern. And that's not coincidence. Mary is being presented in the Gospels as the ultimate Hannah because Mary's son is the ultimate Savior. And all of the sons born to barren women in the Bible, Isaac and Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist, they were all kind of many saviors. They all delivered Israel from their enemies or brought about God's salvation in some way. But it was all, in, in all of those ways, it was incomplete and only just a little hint at what was ultimately going to come. Because you see, Jesus, the ultimate Savior, was not born to a barren woman, but to a virgin woman, which was an even more impossible birth. And again, what God is saying is, my salvation is by my strength, not by your strength. And so the way, the reason it works this way, the reason the pattern is there, is because of the way Jesus came to save us. The gospel is upside down. Jesus won through losing. He saved us through defeat. We're guilty. We're charged with treason against God most high. And the only way for God to make us his beloved children was for his son who he loved with all of his heart to be counted guilty and condemned in our place. See, this is the gospel. In order to save us, Jesus, the eternal son of God, had to come down off his throne of power and become weak. The prince of the universe had to undergo our sentence and become as a condemned criminal in our place. See, we have proof of what Hannah had intuition of. Saving faith then means this, that you bring your emotional reality into the presence of that theological reality. Are you like Penina? Right? Are you mocking? Are you critical of others? Are you you just smug and condescending and self-righteous and just despise people who don't agree with you. You need to bring that emotional reality into the theological reality that's before us. Are you like Hannah? Are you despairing over your barrenness? It's the same thing. I would just encourage you, wherever it is, is the Lord might be working in you, look close. Look close at the places where, like Hannah, you're roaring in agony. Are you looking to the things that you desire but you cannot have? Are you looking? Let me just ask. Are you looking to those things to provide a righteousness for you? See, here are the two options, and I'm done. You can look at your barrenness, 
and you can despair. Because you know, you, you, whatever it is you're after that you can't get, is, what, what that's revealing is that you're looking to that thing for life. It's your righteousness. It's the thing that you believe will save you. Or, or what this passage teaches us is there's a second option, and that is that we can look at our barrenness, we can see it for what it really is, that it is a God-appointed means to bring us to repentance and faith and to convince us to turn away from all of our false hopes and to turn to God in humility and weakness and rest in his grace. We're going to call this series David and David's Son because ultimately all that the Bible teaches us about this King David has reference to his ultimate son, Jesus. And even this story, you can see, is trying to teach us uh, to embrace the reality of our spiritual barrenness because provision has been made for the spiritually barren in Jesus. Fly to him and put your hope in him. Uh, Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, I pray that you come, even as we sing now, of the glory of the gospel and that you would convince us who, who fancy ourselves Peninas, that we are in fact Hannah's. And I pray that this passage would be a gateway to a greater faith and repentance on the part of all of us. Uh, I've, I just, Lord, I can feel, I feel my own barrenness even as I stand up here, that I'm weak and uh, that I'm, I'm just, uh, the, even the foolishness of preaching. Uh, but I pray that you would come into our weakness. I pray for my friends, uh, whatever, the, whatever the area of weakness, of barrenness specific to their lives might be, I pray that you would come into that place of barrenness this morning, uh, that you would come and take our roaring agony and despair and turn it to peace, uh, that, that we might find joy and that you might be glorified in us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you leave this place trusting in your own strength, then... The word of the scripture is is that you go at it alone. In fact, it means you're not a Christian yet. And that as you go, if God is to be merciful to you, it will be in this way that he will meet you on the road to humble you, to bring you to the realization of your need. However, if you go from this place in weakness and dependence and crying out to him in your barrenness, the acknowledgement of your barrenness for help, then the promise of the scripture is, is that we have a king who has come to rule and defend and protect us, and his name is Jesus. And the promise of this benediction is, for all those who put their faith and hope in him, and who are trusting in him and relying on him to make up for what we cannot do because we are, in fact, barren, then the promise of the benediction is is that he goes with you to bring his strength to bear upon your weakness and to bring his provision to bear upon your need. That is the promise of the benediction. So as we go into the world sent by him, receive the benediction then. Uh, If your hope and faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, to all the broken and spiritually barren, receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.